welcome to Commodity Conversations. This is a podcast brought to you by the team from Mikado.com.au. We are a team of analysts and we like to have our musings about the agricultural markets, but also agriculture in general. These podcasts are generally long form, between uh, 20 to 40 minutes long, and we generally cover a particular topic of interest, uh, either between our team members or with external guests. We hope you enjoy the podcast, and I just want to do a quick shout out to one of our supporters. Today's podcast supporter is Cleaver's Meat. For a long time, Cleaver's been well known for producing fantastic quality meat raised on good Australian farms. Quality has always been at the centre of their business. And they've made a big change now, as well as offering the normal prime cuts, you know, your steaks, etc. They've actually moved into convenient ready meals. We don't always have the time to do, you know, a nice big slow cooked roast or, you know, steak and veggies. And sometimes we just got to get something quick and tasty. And uh, this is a good thing that they've moved into uh, uh, convenient ready meals because we know the quality that they've taken with their prime cuts will be transitioned into these ready meals. So you can actually get something that is good and healthy. For example, they've got some pretty good beef hot dogs, chicken nuggets, and a new lasagna that you can just shove in the oven and it's ready, you know, 20 minutes later. So if you don't got much time on your hands and you want something uh, quick and tasty to eat, then definitely look up uh, Cleaver's Organic Products. Uh, you can get them in all the usual places, Coles, Willie's, and those uh, independent stores. So let's just get on to the conversation. At some point, hopefully soon, the drought will break, we'll get the rainfall that we need, and uh, we want to be positive about it and say, well, what are the plans for producers in actually, you know, fixing themselves up after this, uh, well, pretty horrific period, especially in New South Wales and Queensland. So we've got Robert Herman, and we've got Matt Dalgleish, and we've got myself, Andrew Whitelaw, all from the Mikado.com.au team, here to talk about our uh, thoughts and uh, theories on what will happen as the uh, drought breaks. So, Robert, what have you got to say about the drought so far? Well, um, look, the, the first thing to say is that there are people who are, are just desperately trying to survive, and that's, um, you know, that's an immediate situation that needs that people need to address. Um, we also know that droughts do break, and even this last rain that we had in the north, um, it may be something that, that generates a, a change in the season because remembering a lot of those areas that got rain are generally summer rainfall areas, so it has to start sometime, and uh, hopefully that was the start and there's good follow-up rains to come. But, you know, you're right, Andrew, the big the big challenge is, is twofold, I think. One is to get through what we're going through now, and, and for people who are carting water and, um, and selling stock and buying in feed, you know, it's almost impossible to imagine how tough that can be over a long period of time that some of them have had it. But... Importantly, we, I think we really need to focus and talk about um, what we do afterwards because we're going to have properties that are going to need to quickly um, generate revenue. They're going to need to quickly get their productivity going so they can they can get some money back in. Uh, and at the same time, we know that after droughts break, some often the, the amount of feed that comes after a drought is quite mind-blowing. You know, the, the country's been rested, if that's what you'd like to that's another word for the drought, I suppose. And plus, the the stocking numbers are light, so we're going to have farmers looking to uh, restock and uh, and rebuild and plant crops. Um, and we're also going to look at long term plans. So I think they're the areas. Is, is that sort of where you thought we were heading, Andrew? Yep, yep. I reckon that's a good point and a good uh, 
a good segue into into Matt. Matt's one of the the west, most well known livestock analysts in Australia, and uh, it's good to have you here, Matt. Um, What's going to happen when it comes to restocking cattle and sheep? You know, you've been looking at you know modelling of of pricing for a long time, and you know you've been. Uh, predicting prices of the Eki and the Esli for a long time. What's going to happen with, um, well, what's happening with the meat market just now and proteins and what's going to happen if we do get the rain? Uh, yeah, thanks, Andrew. Uh, I guess um, from a price perspective, Rob mentioned the recent rains we've just seen and, and that was uh, surely a good relief for some, certainly in um, parts of New South Wales there and into Queensland there. From a cattle uh, perspective though, some of that rain didn't quite get to the um, to the big areas like the Fitzroy region in Queensland was um, missed out a little bit this time around, but but um, as we head more towards that northern monsoon period, um, they're likely to pick some up there. Um, so from a price perspective, most recently we have seen a little bit of an uptick in prices, but realistically we need to see a lot more follow-up rain, as Rob suggested. Um, so, so let's look at this as a thought exercise. Mm. Let's say it has rained and it's everyone's got grass fever. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, what's so, going to happen? Yeah, now? Not, certainly we've done the modelling on that, looking forward to say next season. Um, so if you look at something, we focus in on something like the uh, Eastern Young Cattle Indicator model. Uh, the the model's designed so that we can scenario test, and um, if we if we look at everything else as per it's currently running in terms of the the predicted inputs into the model, uh, and assuming an average season for next year. Um, you're looking at an annual average ecchi of about 600 cents, um, and that's assuming that we go to just a normal season. So if we get a season like we saw um, back in 2016-17, when the restockers re-engaged in the market in a significant way and and pushed that ecchi up, um, we we can run that type of a scenario through the modelling, increase the rainfall input, uh, and so if we effectively model like what happened that last time and, and, and replicate that, uh, restock of demand, you're talking about an annual average ecchi uh, of around 690 cents. Um, and if you contrast, and that, that's building in um, the, the current low supply of cattle, um, the, the low production both here and, and what's happening over in the States, which is important. But if you look at some of those, um, what's happening in the export sector uh, and the big demand we're seeing both out of the US and, and more recently out of China, um, we can we can put all those um, inputs into the model for this year, and you, 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 that six ninety is a much higher um, annual average than what we saw through two thousand sixteen. The the um, two thousand sixteen ecchi the average is around six thirty cents, um, but during winter when we normally see the price rallying, we peaked at around seven twenty five cents. Um, so we can we can do a similar analysis and say, well, if we're running off now a, a much higher a sixty cent higher annual average ecchi of six ninety. Um, when you go through winter, that, that normal winter time when we get tight supply of cattle, that could push the ecchi um, up to somewhere around the 860, 8.65 cent um, a kilo carcass weight. So the levels like that are just absolutely unprecedented where you've got the ecchi banging on $9 a kilo. It's, it's, um, you know, and, and, and these models, I guess, um, the whole developing scenario with the Asian swine uh, fever is another factor there that could um, supercharge it even more. So we could get supercharged if we get grass fever and uh, African swine fever. Robert, what do you think about in terms of that restocking, in terms of financing? Um, yeah, look, is that, that, be a and that's going to be, yeah, it, it is going to be a challenge and a, on a number of fronts. And we've certainly looked at that 
Just on your point, though, Matt, there there is another factor in that the cattle herd is has never recovered from the 2014-16 drought. You know, it never really got over that. So we've sort of got a drought on drought. So the cattle herd and the numbers of cattle that are available to restock are going to be significantly impacted. And in terms of the sheep flock, we have we had the lowest lamb drop for 100 years last year, the lowest number of lambs born on, and dropped on the, on the ground for 100 years. And so it was, was 1898 when we last had a sheep flock of these levels. So I'm just going to get you to think about it, Matt, that your modelling has got to take into effect, um, you know, unprecedented supply situation. Just to, to touch on your point that you made, Andrew, about financing, um, it's a very it, it, again, this is a new set of circumstances. So, on the one hand, we've got the we've just got over the Banking Royal Commission. Um, we don't really know how the big banks, the big four, who are sort of the pillars of financing agriculture in the past, will respond. Uh, we've also got um, you know we've got some farms where they've, they've they've fed out you know thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we know of some farms where they've actually spent a million dollars and more on feed. That's got to eat into cash reserves. It's got to eat into equity. Um, you've got farm-managed deposits, and I know, Andrew, you're across that, 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 that are going to come into play to some degree. Uh, you've also got um, other financing options these days. So there will be people who will fund cropping enterprises. There'll be pe- there are people now who fund livestock purely on the basis of the, uh, of the equity in the livestock. Um, and so with this reduced, um, you, you know, this changing environment in terms of financing, you've also got um, land prices that even through the drought have actually kept going up. So it's going. It, it's sort of almost like you've got to look at it on a case-by-case, Andrew, to see what is the equity in a business, um, even the equity in terms of um, resources, you know, labour, uh, the age of the farmer, all that sort of thing as to how they're going to go about restarting again. But the big, I, I think, um, Matt, your, your modelling's fine, but um, the danger is that we're going to have to deal with uh, unprecedented low herd and flock to begin the rebuild. Uh, yeah, look, that's a good point. And certainly from the, the lamb price modelling perspective, we do take into account um, the supply measures and we're not probably looking so much at the overall flock size there, but it's the lamb slaughter each year that, that really drives that as it was one of the key inputs. Um, interestingly, from a modelling perspective, the lamb prices historically haven't necessarily um, had much of a uh, – aren't, aren't persuaded much by the season or certainly if you compare them to, say, the price for mutton and, and that would encompass obviously the, the breeding ewes in there as well that – um, that occasionally are turned off in those tough seasons. It's it's those um, mutton prices and sheep prices generally that are um, that are much more responding to um, situations of uh, of weather and changes to climate. And so that's probably from a, from a um, a, dra- sorry, a drought and a, and a breaking of the drought perspective, Rob. I think um, the bigger impact we're going to see going forward, um, price wise, will be on how it impacts um, impacts that sheep price and, and obviously the, the price of breeding ewes. So, um, Andrew, we, we had a look at the other day the cost of planting a crop, which is which will be pretty attractive. You know, you'll you'll be able to get some finance from people who who'll take uh, you know the, the crop down the track as security. Uh, and I think we're looking at what about two hundred and fifty dollars a hectare. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's it's not a, a it's not a dramatically different cost. 
the normal times to replant a crop. But if you're looking at comparing it with putting sheep out there, I mean, the figures we came up with was more than $1,000 a hectare to buy used to stock a property. So I think the, 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 the outcome in the future is going to be pretty assured for cropping. You know, that could actually take a boost and a hit and we could end up with some pretty, pretty big crops. And I know that's something you look at a lot, well, Andrew. That's, that's what I've been, I've been thinking about that at the moment. You know, we've had New South Wales and Queensland effectively two to three years of fallow across most of that area which means the, the ground is well rested and, uh, you know, it's had nutrients placed on it which haven't been used. So what we're going to end up having is, you know, if it's cheaper to put a crop in, you get an income from a crop within six months quite easily. So what are you going to do if you've just been struggling to get income for the last three to four years? Put in, scratch in a cheap crop, you know, barley or wheat, and uh, get your income within six months and uh, we could find every piece of marginal land being devoted to uh, crops instead of uh, instead of sheep. Because remember, a lot of people who are mixed farmers, so they've got the option of sheep or cropping. And if cropping's cheaper to put in, you can get finance on all your inputs. You can get finance on your seed, and uh, you can get an upfront payment on your uh, actual input costs. That's a good point. I was going to query you on this one too, Rob. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it as well because my my perspective, um, particularly uh, in terms of a rebuild, whether you're looking at cattle, herd or sheep flock, um, I really think at a minimum we probably need to have um, you know, three years or so of you know, average to potentially above average conditions and certainly above average would be better to be able to encourage people to really take uh, the step to rebuild. And, and my concern going forward if... Um, if you're a believer in all the climate science out there, that um, a lot of people, you know, after the, on the back of this drought, have been saying and asking the question: Is this the new norm in terms of, you know, is this what we expect? Are we going to have in, in any ten years? Are we going to have you know six to seven years of drought and one one and a half years of decent rainfall that comes hard and fast and floods like we saw in northern Queensland, and then a year or two of average conditions? That's going to make it really difficult if it, we get that level of variability to get enough. Um, time to actually rebuild the herd and the flock. Well, maybe maybe that's where, if you can remove yourself from some of that variability by, for oh, instance, feed, feedlotting. Feed, yeah, exactly. Well, that's maybe the, you know, the future is to go down more of a US model and have that as, a, as an alternative. What, what are your thoughts then, on then that, all Rob? You got, Then all you've got to do is get the grain. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think, I think you're, you're onto something here because um, we've been raising a flag for a while about um, – about the danger for sheep coming out of this, the danger for sheep numbers in the future, because if that even in that variability, Matt, I, I'd suspect that it's easier to adapt to variability if you've got crops more easily than it is if you've got livestock, because if you happen to get no rain in the lead up to planting, well, you don't have to plant. But if you get no rain in the autumn and a dry winter and a failed spring and you're carrying stock, you've, you've still got commitment. So, you know, we've been talking for some time. We've been talking to Sheep Producers Australia and we've been talking um, about the wool industry. This is a dangerous time for the the sheep in, in Australia. And, and there was a time, I remember Lunik did a cartoon where, you know, he had Australia riding on the sheep's back. Um, it could go horribly wrong and head in the other direction big time um, based on some of these uh, um, things you've pointed out. And, and Andrew, as we know, you know, farmers are quite, open to um, to planting crops now you know they've got they've got machinery they've got the capability they've got um, you know the technology and and it's not a mystery anymore and I think that's the thing we've came out of you know what you could call an unprecedented drought and people 
can use this opportunity to to change their operations. So as I always like to add in every podcast, I like to always add you know an example from back in Scotland of uh, of how things relate. Well, probably probably what, what about one from Dumfries? You know, let's get really. Well, I'm going to I'm going to get specific into Dumfries and uh, God's country. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we've never, I don't think we've ever had a problem in Scotland with drought, but we did have the foot and mouth disaster in 2001, uh, which effectively was worse than drought in that it decimated, or sorry, decimated mm. is one in 10, but this actually eradicated all of the, uh, the cattle in our area, which meant that a lot of people had to make those decisions. Do they restock and, and get cattle or sheep, or do they go into other ventures in our area because it was so pristine and picturesque a lot of people turn into tourist ventures uh, as opposed to back into livestock but it does you know as much as the drought is bad it does the positive from it as a positive person is that it does give the opportunity to reevaluate what you do as a business it, what well, is a kind of a forced reevaluation of what you do as a business so, and, and that's that's going to be really important, Andrew, because uh, that you're right to look for an opportunity coming out of this. But the danger is because we it's so it's such a prolonged drought, and there are people doing it so hard that those plans aren't being made now. I mean, Matt, we we see it all the time. Where you, you know, if you look at the Q and A um, program on ABC, um, you know, there was no talk at all about how this drought can be used to set things up better for in the future. It was all the politics of, of surviving at the moment. And we get that. But the, the real tragedy would be that if we do get a good break to this drought at some point, and then this whole, all this stuff just put in the bottom cupboard and everybody moves on, the politicians will be very keen to move on and go and talk about you know positive things. But the important thing will be whether we prepare for the future on the back of this. So... You talked about about there about sheep, so that's obviously your uh, the love of your life is sheep, and what are people going to get into? Are people going to get into merinos? Are, are they going to get into meat sheep? And that's a big challenge with such a volatile wool price at the moment. Yeah, well, we, we've done a bit of off the back of the off the cuff modelling. It's going to be almost impossible to buy good quality merino ewes that people will say, I'll build a, a uh, wool-producing flock around. You know, they, they're, the numbers are so low now, in, certainly low in our, our time, and they're going to be even, who's going to want to sell them, you know, when, when it rains? So, and, and at the same time, you've got very good wool prices and very good uh, mutton and lamb prices. So people are pretty keen to hold on to their sheep if they've got them. So if you, if you rule out merinos, then you say to a farmer, well, perhaps what you can do is um, go and buy just any old ewes and put a prime lamb over them. And, and that's a bit like a cash crop. You get uh, revenue in six, eight months' time, um, and that'd be fine. But it doesn't help the wool industry. Those sheep, are, that's just more sheep going to slaughter. So I don't know. I, look, there was one solution put to me where perhaps in some of the areas, if you take southwest Victoria and Tassie and those areas where they've held onto their sheep, Western Australia to some degree, still got a lot of. Um, maybe there's a model where people can lease out their cast raised ewes instead of sending them to the meatworks. Um, you know, we know it, we know now, Matt, that people have been sending sheep to the meatworks and getting you know unbelievable prices for them. But it may be more important that there's some encouragement for those ewes, you know, that are four, five, six year old that are that are getting to the end of their 
um, their, their um, what would you say, their usefulness in a normal season. Maybe they just get kept on and get sh- and get shipped off to areas where the flock has been really decimated. Or, or does the farmer hire them out for for use, Rob, as an Uber uh, facility? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hire them out to to uh, provide the lamb crop for someone, and then uh, you know, then they go to the meatworks afterwards. Yeah, I love that because I've been thinking about the model and I couldn't get a name for it, but I think that's great. Yeah, Uber, um, e- EU. E B E R or something. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Yeah, got you now. Thanks. Uh, how do you follow on from that, Andrew? I mean, you're pretty quickly when you start talking about sheep. No, but when we, I guess, I guess we need to sort of, we want a good, strong wool industry, but we do need it to be, you know, sustainable. And I think, you know, from what I'm hearing, a lot of people are are thinking about leaving the wool industry, or. But and, and conversely, there's not many people entering the wool industry, so it is in a downward spiral. And I don't know if there is any way of really stopping that. You know, we haven't seen an in, we haven't seen people setting up new merino flocks when we've had record prices, and with prices having come off the boil a little bit. You know, I don't see that happening anytime soon either. Especially if it's going to be expensive to set up a new enterprise. Yeah, um, you're hundred percent right. Sorry, you go, Matt. Just, um, just when we were touching on some of those, um, I guess, uh, potential options for people to look at, whether it's cropping or back into sheep or cattle or whatever, but um, just drawing on one of – I was up in uh, Harndorf about a month or so ago presenting and there was a guy that came after me that was talking very much around what the um, the investment funds, both um, within Australia and some of the big offshore funds in terms of what they're looking at when they're looking at Australia and potential for investment and – one well, things that came up uh, very uh, very common across his uh, presentation was that they're they're only really looking at areas that have got significant um, for the future significant um, and reliable rainfall or access to water, but from a livestock perspective, um, it was very much focused in on the intensive farming. I know we mentioned it in terms of the feedlot from a from a um, sheep or a cattle scenario, um, but the other thing to consider and and something that he'd said that the investment funds were very keen to to um, look to get into were things like. Um, chicken um, production and from that perspective um, without um, being too much pushing our own uh, barrow the, the pork uh, industry as well um, I think they're both the ones that have got um, significant uh, growth potential for Australia and depending upon how this ASF uh, plays out um, for the pork space um, you know I know we don't send a lot of pork nowadays uh, but you never know what's uh, down the track five years if China still can't really regain um, back to uh, where they were, they may be looking um, at uh, at places that can provide ASF free pork if we can keep it out of the country. That, that, they're good points, Matt, and those ex- enterprises you talked about are all enterprises where you take control of your um, risk. So you take control of your feed, your feeding. You're not reliant on rain. You know you've got to buy grain, obviously, and that's impacted by. The seasons, but chickens, pigs, uh, lamb feedlots, beef feedlots, um, they're making the business more reliable and, and more sustainable, I guess, in terms of um, getting through those tough years. So let's go to another point. One of the, I guess, most controversial policies that's came out in recent times has been the, from the NFF, with their, it was one line in their document about exit strategies and exit plans. Now, we've spoken about, you know, how, how people can restock, how people can 
choose to grain, sheep, wool, or cattle, how they can diversify their their business. But I, I was quite quite surprised by how how much opposition there was to the the policy of having an exit plan there for people who who want to get out and. Uh, it seems to me as a to be a, a quite a sensible policy to have because not every farm can survive just in the same way that not every hairdresser or baker survives. So I found that that quite interesting that there was so much opposition to that policy, which to me seems like a common sense and fairly compassionate policy to have for those who are struggling. So that is one way that people will have to look at once the drought breaks is whether they continue to farm. And it's probably better to think about that once it's broken rather than mid-drought. I think um, it, it was very unfortunate. I think it was unfortunate it was even in the policy because it, it just distracted from everything else. It also became so politicised. And, and, you know, it was very unfortunate to see people, you know, even some farmers saying, oh, I'm not going to have someone telling me I've got to get off my farm. And, and that certainly wasn't what was happening But with that announcement. But... That's the way it was was read out, and you know, I, I guess I'm not a. If, if you're in that situation, then you need help. But most farmers, you know, ninety nine point nine nine or whatever it is, percent of farmers aren't in a situation where they can't look after themselves. Um, you know, they've got equity in their properties, and if they're deciding that that this is the end of farming for them because of this, you know, one drought too many or whatever. Most of them will make their own arrangements to move on. And, and fortunately, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in Australia now, there's still good demand for land and prices of land have stood up. So um, I, I think that was unfortunate. I think, though, th- this whole idea of making sure we help people, and, and it may, be, may not be because of the drought always, it may be because they just you know, had some bad luck or made some bad decisions. I think that's fair enough, but it shouldn't be the focus of, of where this is going. The focus should be on how do we actually make these farms more sustainable, um, more re, uh, resilient in the future, uh, because the, these seasonal things are going to keep going. And, uh, you know, I think you've talked a lot about that, Matt. So um, that, that, you know, what we see now is possibly going to be just a more of a norm of what we see in the future. Um, yeah, that's right. I guess um, from a data perspective, when you look at... Um you know, across the country at, uh, at, at farm revenue and, and assessing it against um, the size of farm, though, um, there is a, a fairly clear relationship between, I guess, to a degree, smaller farms being, if you look at re- resilience or ability to get through the mm-hmm. tough times, the smaller farms definitely have a tougher time of it. And, and looking across the averages on the data, you do see a, a, a significant difference between the smaller farms and, and medium farms are a little bit more resilient and the bigger farms are much are much more able to, to cover, whether it's through just diversity or having the ability to have assets across different regions or whatever. And I think, I think when you look at those smaller farms as well, <laughs> All the farms that we talk to and that we deal with are commercial farms where the owner of the business makes you know, close to 100% of their income on farm. A lot of these failing farms or the smaller farms that aren't resilient well, to... Failing, failings maybe not... The farms that find it a bit more difficult to go through the tough times. These failing farms. Uh, a lot of them... When you look at some of this, the data around them, a lot of them are are not full scale farmers. A lot of them have off farm jobs, yeah. and it's almost almost a part time gig as a farm, and they don't have the capacity to get through the better times. And that's you know 
are they the ones that we should be focusing on versus the actual you know commercial farmers? That consolidation, Andrew, is happening everywhere. It's happening in it's happening in corner stores. Look at the fuel stores now. You know the fuel the, the big ones that dominate. That's happening everywhere. So I don't think we we we're going to solve that problem by supporting farmers. You know that that will happen. I guess the question is though that. Can people make really clear decisions for the future? After we, I think after we get out of this drought. I mean, if you're in, if you're in drought now, your your whole focus, understandably, is on dealing with the day to day challenges. But we have to quickly move to an to a to a position where we start preparing for the next downtime. And whether you're preparing for the big commer, uh, big commercial operations, Andrew, or whether you can preparing for those smaller. Uh, farms, those smaller family operations, lifestyle farms, if you like, everybody will have to prepare for the future. Yeah, well, I think that. Any other comments from anyone? I think my, I guess my conclusion is, you know, prepare, plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, Matt, any comments? Um, yeah, look, I, I think we've covered most of the areas there. Um uh, I can't disagree with what you said there, Andrew. Um, fr- from my, uh, Robert alluded to it before that I'm in the office here. I'm probably considered um, the greeny. The mo- I was going to say the most green, um, but uh, yeah, I, I think we um, we need to really um, not just have a, a proper formalised policy around drought. Not just because we're through in it now. We need to have a policy that exists. Um, it, beyond this current drought that, that's there for in perpetuity, but it extends through to, to other factors um, around use of water and environment that, that needs to be um, mu- much more forward-thinking and beyond the uh, three-year election cycle. I think um, the, the current way of just, um, you know, uh, jumping to a crisis from here to crisis there, I don't think it's a good way uh, when you're looking at things around water and sustainability and environment, you got and 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 farming's all part of that. You've got to have a bit more of a um, a long-term plan, from my perspective. But that goes for government and individual businesses as well. That Correct. they've got to have a plan, and and that's where we see these farms that are doing better in this current season are the ones that are uh, they have a long-term plan. Robert, anything else to add before we yeah, close up? My final comment is for those people who are listening to uh, Commodity Conversations for the first time uh, or, or who are regular listeners and, and followers of Mercado, they may be wondering because today you've had, uh, you've had a, a fan of sheep. Uh, I'm, I've been nominated as the sheep man. You've had a the Scotsman and you've had a yeah, <laughs> sheep lover. You've had a, uh, you've had a Scotsman and you've had a tree hugger all talking to you about drought. So <laughs> If anyone's going to come up with the answers, perhaps that's the diversity we need. Who knows? Well, somebody from but, a country uh, that's never had drought. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to try. So we've got a drought expert from somebody who's never experienced a drought. But, um, but look, it, it is a very serious matter, and it has very serious challenges um, for for all farming going forward. But um, you know, from the sheep man, I would say the sheep industry is the one that's going to have the big questions after it. Uh, when this drought breaks, and more so wool, probably. Yeah, I think I think wool is. Um, yeah, look, we're seeing wool production dropping. Uh, you made the point, Andrew, that uh, we've had record prices for wool and the record prices for sheep and lamb and mutton, um, and yet the flock didn't improve. Now we know the drought had a big impact on that, but 
the suspicion is that the appetite is not there um, like it once was. So, you know, somehow that's got to be turned around if this is going to be a the beginning of a sheep recovery. Okay, well, thanks for listening, people. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a like or a review on iTunes or Facebook or wherever you listen to it. Share it with your friends or family. Uh, we hope everything goes well. Stay safe, everyone. Bye-bye.